Hello, this is Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. Today's episode is in two parts. Before the episode, I just wanted to mention a couple of awards that are open at the moment. The first is the inaugural British Podcast Awards, for which we're up for the Listener's Choice Award. So if you'd like to show us some love, then you can go over to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote, where you just need to enter the podcast name, click on the Lunar logo and enter your email address. You can also vote for us from outside the UK. Secondly, the nomination process is open for this year's Saboteur Awards. If you'd like to nominate us in the Best Wildcard category, or any other category you feel is appropriate, then go over to www.sabotagereviews.com and click on the Saboteur Awards icon and fill in their simple form. I'll put links to both of these things in the episode description. And as always, if you'd like to follow everything we're up to, you can do so on Twitter at silent underscore tongue, or at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, and now Instagram. I have done that. And do the right thing and tell your friends about us, okay? First up, it's me chatting to poet and visual artist Kairani Baroka about co-editing Stairs and Whispers, the first major UK anthology of poetry and essays by deaf and disabled poets. That's deaf with a capital D forward slash little d. And that's out through Nine Arches Press. We also get round to talking about her debut collection, Rope, which will also be out through Nine Arches in October 2017. Ah, and we talk about a crowdfunding campaign for Stairs and Whispers, the anthology, which I'm very happy to say has reached its target. Here's Karani, or Oka, as I call her in the interview. So I thought I would uh, begin, so to speak, with the poem Conception. <laughs> Dogged speck, clot of blood and all of us awkwardly rivet-welding selves to the earth for another quiet week. I think eggs have self-awareness. I think they have a say. I think mums said no, and no, and maybe. And then she saw this one little snake and sighed and said, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, okay, how are you doing? I'm doing Thank you. Good, good. In my um, normal vein of awkward starts to podcasts and interviews, um, I'll shoehorn in how we met, which was uh, a few weeks ago yes. now at Verve Poetry Festival in Birmingham. Um, just a little disclaimer and warning for podcast listeners. There are to come quite a few guests where I'll be saying I met them at, po- at Verve Poetry yeah, Festival. It was, but, but it was a really good brilliantly event. Brilliantly curated. So yeah. props to Stuart Bartholomew and yeah. Cynthia Miller. We met, you were doing a reading from your book, which is in front of me, which I'm pointing out, which no one can see, called Indigenous <laughs> Species. I think we should start talking about that because it leads into really interesting aspects of your work to do with visual art and access to literature. So sure, were you Maybe there? you could get, yeah, I saw the reading. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 so that's why I'm... <laughs> I'm so sorry. You know when you do a reading and you're, you're kind of, the audience is sort of like a, a mass of hopefully friendship, you know? Mm. And you're, you're, you're hoping that you're connecting with people. But. I think the best way to start is if you maybe explain firstly what the book is and then right. how it came about and why the different aspects are important. Sure. So Indigenous Species is not a poetry collection. It is one poem and the introduction is basically an essay that introduces that poem. The poem is a poem that came out in 2013 when I was um, living in Jakarta where I'm from. It came out just as a response to all the environmental destruction that we're seeing, but also environmental destruction is social destruction and seeing, you know, Indonesia is extremely biodiverse, but also extremely rich in cultural diversity. We have hundreds of languages and also an enormous amount of rainforest that is 
unfortunately being decimated and the as I say in the introduction, you know, the fatal consequences of that are really palpable. Last year alone, um, over 100,000 Indonesians died from the air pollution from the fires. Um, and that doesn't include the thousands in Singapore and Malaysia. And it doesn't include, you know, kids not being able to go to school for stretches of time and people who lost their livelihood as a result of not being able to work. And just, you know, environmental destruction covers lots of different things. It covers plastics pollution, and it covers mercury poisoning, covers mining. Indonesia has the biggest gold mine in the world in West Papua, and yet the province has had a lot of unrest and oppression from the Indonesian government, and the people surrounding that gold mine aren't receiving the benefits. It just goes on and on. And my parents are, have been environmental activists since I can remember, so it was always really emotional for me. And I think I wanted, I wanted to make this the, the, a manuscript that I didn't think any publisher would take on and uh, I don't know about you but when it comes to creative projects I sort of when I've decided something's good to do I sort of have a commitment to that project like a child almost um, and with indigenous species I knew I wanted to make it into its own thing because it didn't seem to fit into any collection that I was working on you know it was sort of stuck out at odd angles it seemed like it was its own beast so to speak so it was first performed uh, at a residency I did at Emerging Writers Festival in Melbourne Australia um, and I wrote the poem for basically for this event um, that was about animals so all the poems were about animals and um, I really love performing it as a spoken word poem but even when I was writing it because I'm a disabled artist and I've been doing accessibility and inclusion work in the arts and I try as much as possible, though I still have many failings, as all of us, you know, probably at some time uh, or other do. So when I wrote it, I thought, okay, this is going to be a spoken word poem, but I really want it to have images and projections and, and, and imagery of the destruction. And I wanted to make it graphic and illustrated in a certain way. So because of, you know, lack of time, funding, I didn't really get to do that until I did a residency in Malaysia um, at Rimbundahan, which basically, um, they gave me a little house, beautiful little house, um, right next to this forested area where a python, no kidding, lived in the middle of the night. So I would... <laughs> I, I remember once I forgot my flashlight coming back from a friend's house, another art, my friend Jen's house, and I realized I'm alone in the forest and it's dark and a python comes out at night. And, I just, <laughs> and you know, monkeys would peer in and there, you know, there were wild boars around and it was very uh, conducive to really making art about the rainforest. So I thought about making this a performance installation because I consider myself an interdisciplinary artist. Um, I was trained in interdisciplinary mixed media art, which is weirdly how I rediscovered poetry, because I always wrote poetry since basically since I was a toddler. Apparently the first two poetic things I said were the sound of the wind is very, very thin. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's it! <laughs> done. Yeah, Just, done. Retired. <laughs> yeah, like really little. I was yeah, like, yeah. poetry! <laughs> you can yeah. make things rhyme. Um, and got back into, you know, poetry and performing spoken word through visual art, weirdly. <laughs> Eventually, I decided I wanted to make indigenous species into a book, but an accessible book. And I wanted to answer the question, why don't we see Braille text and Braille text and artwork in the same book? And there have been, you know, tactile books made before, but none that were for visually impaired readers as well as non-visually impaired readers. Yes. The cited version that I'm holding in my hands um, that I read out at Verve is out now with Tilted Access Press, who very thankfully, even though I, I really did think, you know, I'm going to get this done in maybe 
another 20 years. Like publishing industry isn't ready. It's okay. If I have to do it on my own money, I can. So maybe I'll save up and, you know, make one off art books or something. But they, they picked up my whole crazy proposal, <laughs> which I really wasn't expecting. And so on each page, on the left-hand side of the book, you have the word braille in braille. But it's not raised braille. It's just the dots that mm. are on the flat page. And I wanted that specifically so that it could be a translation of absence because blind and visually impaired readers, when it's just a flat page, they can't read anything unless they're using a screen reader, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted sighted readers, first of all, to acknowledge that we are sighted readers, right? And here I am with my huge Coke, I mean, I have, <laughs> without my glasses in context, I'd be blind as a bat, right? And yet there's this weird division that, oh, you're, you know, you're not blind or sight impaired. <laughs> so just thinking about that. Just out of interest, is there anywhere that listeners could go to see examples of these images? Thank you. Can yeah, you there have been a few interviews um, that I've done where Tilted Access has also provided the images of both the left and the okay, right hand yeah, side. Yeah. Of the, and I, I can provide you with links. To yeah, those. we'll put links into the into That the would be great. Stuff, sure. Yeah. And so the images that I used were of um, some traditional motifs, mostly from Kalimantan. So this crab, for example, Lil Sebastian, <laughs> just decided to call him that, <laughs> is, um, is, is from a traditional form of Dayak tattooing. Um, but I sort of made it my own little fiery mm -hmm. crab. Uh, and there are some traditional motifs, but also contemporary motifs. And I want it to be bright and jagged. And I wanted the brightness actually to be menacing. Because people think of darkness and blackness as sort of a negative. But I wanted to, to have people feel the frenetic neonness as something destructive so the, mm. there's this ri river that runs through the whole book and it sort of symbolizes the forces of commercialism i really like the fact that your book is visually striking but complex in the same sense it's not an obvious interpretation of the, uh, thank the, you so the, much the story as it goes that's on. what i was going for because i wanted the the images to tell a story in themselves for example the final page of the book dun 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 i'm not going to spoil <laughs> it for you but this is a visual spoiler, right? Yeah. And you only understand what's happening if you look at the visuals and in the Braille and tactile version, which knock on wood is going to be released by Tilted Access this year. If you if you read the text and then you you feel what is happening here and you feel the image, I hope it, that it'll give a, a, um, a further depth to the poem. Yeah. So, really so the, the tactile version that's underway, is it? Yes, we're currently um, trying to sort out the logistics of that because it was always intended that there would be a sighted version and a braille and tactile yeah. art version. I think what appeals to me so much from this book is the, you, the usual idea behind people moving towards accessibility is very binary, isn't it? It's either people can see or they can't see, they can hear or they can't hear. There right. are there are so many. There are the so, so many ways wide, people are disabled. And and, this yeah. idea of having tactile images as well as braille as well as well as a physical book it seems a much more appropriate way to approach accessibility in publishing i feel like also um for example i, I was on this panel creative approaches to audio description at the unlimited festival last year in it you know as practitioners we're talking about how oh god it's so boring and you know reeking of a blindness that isn't considered when people do audio descriptions that are verbatim and don't perceive audio descriptions in themselves as art forms, you know. So there were people um, on the same panel who messed around with that a lot. And for me, I feel like I want the translations of artworks and poems to be completely separate artworks in themselves. 
Um, I didn't just want it to be this notion that is false of translation as an objective thing, that it's going to be completely the same, because it's not the same experience when you hear a poem and when you read it on the page, you know, for sighted people. And it's not even the same experience when you're reading a poem in Braille um, and when you're hearing it read out to you by like, you know, speech to text or, or something. And I know that in the blind and sight impaired community, there's this whole thing of, well, you know, people are so reliant on screen readers, but then it becomes all about the technology and what if people don't have access to that technology and what if people don't know how to spell because they're so reliant on. But when I first began the process of creating indigenous species, I sort of ran this idea first by my blind and sight impaired colleagues who are also in arts, arts and accessibility. I said, I have this idea for, you know, crazy idea of making a, this braille and tactile art book poem book and they said oh that sounds really cool and interesting so i said okay phew because i don't want this to be seen as a charity object i don't want any of my work to be seen as charitable quote unquote mm-hmm. because as somebody who identifies as disabled i just really hate <laughs> people treating us as though there's been enough of that yeah <laughs> as though we're consumer yeah, yeah. and also translating things into accessible formats only thinking of us as consumers rather than us as artists. And that's a big problem in terms of infrastructure and arts institutions around the world, where, for example, people will say, yes, our venue is completely accessible, but the stage isn't accessible because it didn't even dawn on them yeah. that the artist would yeah, be and I think it's disabled. quite often, of course, it's necessary and completely appropriate that you would try to make everything accessible to an audience. But if you're not allowing artists from those groups to make work and present work it's never going to be completely or appropriately directed to the same audience is it the disablement of people is more of a problem than the impairments that people may have um so for example i did not have proper pain medication until i arrived in london so for like years i couldn't create uh, the amount of work that I wanted to, the quality of work that I wanted to, simply because I was so I wasn't getting proper healthcare, and there are other forms of disablement that really intersect with a lot of other forms of identity. So I guess that might bring us to the anthology that I'm yeah, co-editing. Yeah, and actually, the, with... the direction I was heading in anyway was because it links also into this um, giving autonomy autonomy to artists, uh, disabled artists as well, in order to talk to. Uh, audiences so yeah we should move on to talk about that. right sure so um nine arches press which is also publishing my debut full-length collection rope um in october in early may we're going to publish stairs and whispers deaf and disabled poets write back and that's deaf with capital d uh forward slash small d and that is definitely collaborative effort co-edited by the, the wonderful daniel sloom and the wonderful sandra allen and myself and it has essays and lots of poetry from really top-notch poets from around the UK. The condition for um, consideration was that you had to be based in the UK and uh, that you had to be disabled yourself in, or, or deaf. Uh, it's just been a brilliant process. I really feel like it is a dream job, as Sandra has also said elsewhere, it really is. Because, first of all, we get to explore so many facets of other people's lives that bear no resemblance to any of our lives at all because there's such a wide variety in terms of what disabled lives are right so we're exploring that and we're exploring different poetics how someone who considers themselves learning disabled might write poetry in a different way and that language needs to be taken into account as well or um, how people who are hard of hearing play with the language that they may hear or not hear in a poem and just in terms of intersectionality it's been brilliant as well for example daniel is a man sandra genderqueer so we pick up on different things. So there might be a poem where somebody says, hey, actually, that's a little bit 
sexist and somebody says, oh, I didn't get that part. Or somebody says, oh, is this racist? And then, you know, yeah. so we really, um, we re because we really want to only also include poets who share our ethics and our ethos of being truly inclusive. And so we really wanted to, to present the best of, of what we thought the spirit of a, dis uh, of a disabled poet's community should be. And the quality is really, I think, breathtaking. I mean, sorry to toot our own horn, <laughs> but I just, I feel really privileged to. So there's currently a crowdfunding campaign to fund the publication of Stairs and Whispers. Yes. That will have been announced, I think, four days before this podcast has gone out. So we don't know the result of that. It's very close already. Something is beyond 85%, I believe, yes, of funding. Definitely. So I think it looks like it's going to happen. Hopefully. Um, hopefully, when you're listening to this, that, is all, that has happened. Yeah, let's think positively. I'm sure it will have happened. Yes. <laughs> but we're just in this difficult position of having to talk about the future. In, yeah, in the past, no, but, but yeah. we're, I think it looks, things look good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hopefully, um, it's been partially funded by Arts Council England yeah. and um, Nine Arches, but you just need that little push yes, because one thing that I also really love about this project is, you know, we are committed to paying contributors, yeah, yeah. poets and obviously as editors, um, and the, uh, there will be poetry and also essays and also videos that Sandra has been working on that are accessible with BSL. Oh, excellent, yeah. Yeah, so it's so, a whole multimedia operation. Was there any criteria in terms of what you were asking for? Or did you just ask for general submissions first to get an idea of what people wanted to send in? Yeah, actually, we're, we're working on um, ordering and the sections right yeah. now, obviously, and how, um, and how that works in the book, because as... You know, sometimes if, if poems are just read at random, you don't realize the order that they should be in. So that's a lot of, you know, <laughs> shuffling of pages. Yes, we did just ask for sort of general submissions from the deaf and disabled poets community. And then we, you know, we're sort of seeing themes that are emerging, um, common threads, if you will. Also, we wanted, uh, you know, a great variety of, of poems that didn't clump too heavily in terms of representing one disabled life or another and... Also, the poems as a whole, if we see, for example, oh, okay, this poet has, has, has written a poem about this experience and, you know, of, of treatment, um, maybe then we'll take another poem from another poet that has also touched on those issues. We'll, we'll look to, you know, another thing that they've written can sort of encapsulate more diversity. So in a really nice twist of fate, the program we put out talking about issues around accessibility, which was hosted by the wonderful Harry Giles, Harry was joined by two guests who are both in the anthology, Andrew Simons and Abby Palmer. Yes. But some, one, one thing, aspect that they did talk about was this idea that a lot of art submission processes mm. don't allow for the fact you may go through periods of not feeling very well, so yes. you can't meet deadlines, you may not have physical Absolutely. access to, you know, so I was just wondering whether... Right. Um, any special consideration? Well, we had quite a long submission process. It was, I mean, this whole project is two years. We had quite a, a, a large window. And I think there was a certain point after that window closed where we were getting people, you know, inquiring as to whether they could submit. But we really did. You have to have a cutoff point somewhere. Yes, <laughs> and I think, you know, almost two years is a pretty long yeah, yeah. cutoff point. So eventually, you know, Jane and all three of us had to say, nope, that's it. This is what we're working with. And it's a task in and of itself to sort of work with what we were given um, in terms of submissions. But I think we, we did a great job of hopefully great job of including as many uh, women as possible and genderqueer people as possible, um, trans representation in terms of 
people who are non-white, you know, um, black, Asian, um, minority, ethnic. So because I think oftentimes the notion of disability and who is disabled, who's a disabled artist is kind of whitewashed and you don't see a lot of... Well, we've had guests on in the past as well who've spoken of the fact that as uh, an artist you can be black but you can't necessarily be anything else, you know, in people's minds. You're right. sort of marketed as being right. a black artist, so you, you have to almost forfeit the fact that you're disabled or the fact that you're queer or the fact that you're trans. Absolutely. It, it, it's because, all about intersectionality, yes, exactly. yeah, and I yeah. think that's the beauty of poetry is yeah. all of that comes out. Mm. It's so strange that nobody ever talks about white identity and <laughs> never asks, you know, a straight white man to qualify. You know, I'm, I'm a white guy, but I'm also straight. And I'm also, you know, I mean, why, yeah. <laughs> why is there that distinction? Yeah. You know, this notion of identity politics. Well, what about white identity politics and straight identity politics and male identity You know, um, so I think the great thing is that we're all on the same page in terms of politics and also I have been educating each other. I mean, I'm not trans. I'm not genderqueer. Uh, Sandra's been kidding me about that. I'm not a cancer survivor. Daniel is. You know, we're we're constantly educating each other, in the most beautiful way, mm. really. So it's it's been a joy. It's been a real joy. The poem you read at the beginning of the interview yes. is from your upcoming collection, Rope, yes. and that's through Nine Arches. Exactly. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that, and certainly plug the date by all means, because <laughs> I know for a fact this will be out before. <laughs> <laughs> at least before the collection comes out. So. so Rope comes out the first week of October. I'm extremely excited about it. It's really, um, I really can't believe that so many of the things that I've wanted to do all my life are finally happening sort of all at once. A couple, a few poems in Rope I began 10 years ago and actually took me 10 years to finish properly. And I think I just did a lot of living in my 20s. So from ages 21 to 31, all of those poems are in there and they sort of encapsulate this sense of feeling unmoored. I think everybody in their 20s, you know, <laughs> you do feel unmoored and you're trying to grasp at something like what, what is it that you can feel happy doing? What is happiness? You know, how do you attain stability in any shape or form? And that brings you to the, it brings me to this concept of rope, which I just realized, oh, I use that concept in a few poems. Um, I bring that metaphor about, and there is a po poem called rope, which is the, the, the final poem in the collection about what it is we're trying to hold on to and what it is that we think is important. And it's also about relationships and feeling and mental health and trying to find solid ground. Basically, it's all about journey through my 20s in various places. I mean, when I look through the poems and rope, I wrote them in Asia, Europe, the Americas. I've just been fortunate enough to, for example, like have get scholarships in the States, so I was there, and then residencies elsewhere. And so it's sort of like this map for me <laughs> of the past 10 years of my life. But I hope that it's um, some of it is autobiographical, but also some of it is about my friends' experiences. You know, for example, the poem cutting that I'm going to read at the end of at the end of this podcast is about um, other people's experiences. Some of the work is fictional. Some of it is prose poetry that's also fictional. Um, some of it is non-fictional. And what I love about poetry more than, I mean, I work in a nonfiction and fiction as well, but I really, poetry feels like my home. <laughs> and what I love so much about it is that it's, as I say in the introduction to Rope, you know, poetry is fiction, nonfiction, poetry, other, you know, mm. you can read. I really love the fictional nonfiction aspects about poetry. I think that's what yeah. attracts me so and much. And you yeah. can't, 
put your finger down and say, this is based on their experience. Even, I mean, not all the first person poems in Rope are my own experience. I may be writing it with an eye, you know, from a first person mm -hmm. point of view, but I love the fact that nobody can actually really tell what happened to me and what didn't um, and what's fiction and what isn't. Some of these stories are my friend's stories. Some of them I just came up with in my head, but I think what is true in all of them is the emotion. And I feel like poems are sort of repositories of emotion that are are there facts of emotion, you know, that we can go back to and pick up. Things evolve in, in interesting ways. And much like, you know, this concept of disability cultures and crypt cultures, like the line between abled and disabled is artificial, right? What do you consider disabled? What do you consider mm -hmm. abled in, in so many instances? Although, you know, in the book, we, we, you know, we say that disabled is the opposite of enabled with an E, not unabled with a U. It's the social model of disability, mostly, that we are, are seeing nowadays in the language of arts and accessibility <laughs> people. Um, but yeah, it all, it all sort of ties together because these, you know, cultural contradictions, quote unquote, are really not contradictions at all, I feel like. You know, I'm a Muslim feminist. My dad's a Muslim. I, I learned the word feminist from my father. And I remember when I was small, he <laughs> was really funny. He was actually in my exact same position. He was a PhD student on scholarship in the States. I learned the word feminist because he had applied to be in a feminist organization and they rejected him because he was a guy. And I was like, but what is feminist? And I was like, well, I was trying to get into this thing and think they would take me. Um, you know, and he prays five times a day. My, my family, you know, they're, they're, they're very spiritual Muslims and they're the most, you know, feminist people in my life um, a lot of the time. So... I think that a lot of stereotypes that people apply to, you know, people assume that being a straight white male is sort of what being human is, and it's not. There's so many varieties to the human experience, and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with all the, the work that I do with Rope, with Indigenous Species, with Stairs and Whispers all coming out, even with, um, I co-edited with Ng Shang, uh, this anthology of uh, short fiction, urban short fiction from Southeast Asia called Heat, which is part of a trilogy, Heat, Flesh, Trash, that also came out last year. Um, just showing the variety of what it means to be in Southeast Asia and writing about Southeast Asia. It's nothing like, you know, you see so many travelogues of, you know, white guys coming to Southeast Asia. And we certainly got a lot of those submissions as well. My Thai prostitute experience and how oh, we really did. And it's just nothing like what life is actually like if you're from Southeast Asia, you know, <laughs> you have so many different experiences. And I'm just, I feel very privileged to get to um, to edit these books and to make these books that show different sides to to different facets of, of human experience that I, I think are still underrepresented in literature. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful place to stop because time is running on, but we'll take one final poem before Thank we you. wrap up completely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. So Conception was previously published in Magdalene and, and Cutting was published um, in an anthology called Iskra to benefit the organization Everyday Victim Blaming. Cutting. Cropped short feels like exhalation, punk sive right. Something about long hair reminds me of tears all down the front. A friend after the first time before she cut it off to be strong and then it happened again times two. Reminds me of tangled feminine juices, guilt crystallizing down telephone lines after other friends cut their hair and the 43rd man walks. Long hair reminds me of all my hers, secrets of the majority walking open into bitumen cities. Sometimes long hair makes anger rise in tresses, mess, 
sinless bless. Thank you very much, Olka. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for today. Coming up next, Lizzie Palmer talks to Wayne Holloway-Smith about the imminent release of his debut collection, Alarum, out through Blood Axe Books. The pair also talk about a short course that Wayne led at the Poetry School in South London called The Poem as Party Guest, which Lizzie also attended. Here's Lizzie and Wayne. No worries. Oh yes, the help you need is strapping, for sure. It might at any time now pull up outside your door in its mucky white van, man arms flush to the steering wheel, its muscular weight the only buoyant thing in your hallway, your kitchen, and stood upright in itself, full face, a dimple-cheeked, unshaved grin, almost a caricature in its self-assuredness and, you imagine, shirtless beneath its overalls. A well-oiled metal box of fixing tools, for fixing. A roll-up behind one ear, it promises itself to you that everything can definitely be sorted, mate. The pieces of it all will be clean and fitted back together, good as new, no worries. And you want to believe it will show up this time, at least you're sure of that, so sure you can hear it whistle. Thank you. Pleasure. Hello Wayne, how are you? I'm alright, yeah. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I'm sorry that you got here before I did. <laughs> it's taken us a while to get together, hasn't it? That's but true. But we've made it. I finally made it. Even even today, could have gone wrong but didn't in didn't. the end. Which was Not nice. yet. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I have pressed record on the recorder, so that is the main thing. Was it happening then? I'm enjoying no. that. I'm enjoying <laughs> it having... wasn't happening. <laughs> just, I'm always afraid that that is the one thing I'm going to do and everything else goes right. Okay, so, so we would have um, conducted a fairly interesting interview and then you would have forgotten to record it. Yeah. And then we'd have to reproduce the whole thing artificially. Perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to do that. So. <laughs> I'd like to start by talking a little bit about how we met which was at the Poetry School in Kennington. Great, yeah. um, as, as you know, for the benefit of our listeners. Yeah, yeah, um, I was there. <laughs> you were there. <laughs> um, I took one of Wayne's courses, uh, which was called Poem as Party Guest, uh, which was a really interesting idea for a class, which maybe we can get onto in a little bit. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you got into uh, teaching a class at the Poetry School, um, and then a bit more in general about how how you teach classes, how you structure them, uh, maybe how you get work out of your students. Oh, yeah. Well, the poetry school thing came about, I think, probably because a while before that class, like maybe a year before, I was invited to take part in another poetry school initiative, which was called something like the Tutor Academy, which took on like maybe four younger poets and gave them an opportunity each to teach twice on like almost like a module long uh, course. We, we each got a different topic or we chose a different topic and then we would kind of alternate between us for eight weeks. So I taught twice on that. And then a while later, I, I, I kind of enjoyed it. And part of my livelihood is I lecture. So I kind of explored the subject matter of how to communicate 
poetry to you know the thing about poetry i think is like it's really difficult like my whole idea of poetry is that language is like quite reductive there's one word called sadness mm -hmm. there's a thousand different experiences of sadness how do you pin all of those different experiences onto this one word sadness i think poetry kind of has the potential to stretch and go beyond language to kind of get at meanings behind the behind and outside of the restricted nature of like the English language as we use it in at the everyday. So I've been constantly trying to articulate that to students, but in the restrictive everyday language. Yeah. So it's uh, and one idea I, I came up with was just this idea of a poem as a party guest. So I wrote to Julia Bird at the poetry school and told her about it and then she thought it sounded good. So we arranged for me to teach there, which was fun. I really enjoyed it. Did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it, yeah. The struggle with, with that particular class, I think, is, is that everyone was already quite good. Yeah. <laughs> so my expectations of like this messianic presence being me sweeping in and making everyone a brilliant poet was like completely subverted or undermined by the fact that everyone was already really good. Everyone was. Yeah. Really good. Um, yeah. So in terms of structure, like, I don't necessarily have a formula. Like, I normally turn up yeah, and have, like, a there. loose idea yeah. and then see how people are engaging with each other. Mm. So the first week is for me just to sort of try and find out who everyone is. And then I kind of build a, a structure, a loose, loose structure around... Mm around that but I think the, the lesson for me the success of it is always contingent upon the participants of the students so that's what I'm that's what I'm more interested in yeah. and in terms of what was it you asked that how do I get them to do work or something yeah how do, um, they, how do they get work how do you get the work out of people how do I get the work <laughs> I think the thing is like with I mean it's more difficult sometimes that in a university context Somewhere like the poetry school where I just taught at the Faber Academy as well. The same sort of thing, like people have paid money to learn something and they just like really fucking want to learn it. So it's not difficult to make them or to kind of coerce them into doing work. That's what they're there to do. Yeah. Sometimes it's like maybe like for our, for our class, like one of the things I did on the first lesson was just ask them to kind of suspend their disbelief a bit or to to kind of put aside just for the five weeks their own ideas about what a poem was allowed to be mm. and just for these five weeks explore this kind of new thing that I was presenting which is always I'm, I'm really interested in stuff outside of traditional modes of poetry in some way so sometimes people turn up with particular expectations and then it's just about kind of asking them to forget about those for a bit they can go back to them, but just for this course, see, see if there's anything else helpful that they can find. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to focus on, on the poetry school. It was over a, almost a year ago now, uh, that's helpful, that class, it? wasn't it, that I, that I attended. But just maybe you could just sum up um, the concept of what that was, just because I think it's an interesting... Well, I guess there's just, again, I don't think this is like a catch-all way of looking at poetry. It's certainly not some kind of manifesto or something. It was just one route into a type of poetics I was considering at the time. I was just wondering, I was thinking about how the poetry that I don't like, basically, and how much of a kinship 
that poetry has to the way that I personally behave at parties, which is just to get drunk and tell people about how terrible neoliberalism is, which is sometimes not really what someone at a party <laughs> has attended for. No. <laughs> I think the thing is, like, um, I, I guess that like, you can read it on the website or something, but it was pretty much just what are some of the things that socially aren't conducive to building a good relationship. So if someone talks at you and you don't feel part of the conversation, like you're interchangeable, that they want someone to speak at, you could be anyone. Uh, going on too long, preaching, effectively just not being interested in any type of actual social exchange, any genuine social exchange. So I was thinking that poetry could be along the same line, could operate and has operated along the same lines. I've read poems that have bored me. I'm. You know, it's almost like if I, if they were a party guest, I'd be looking around the room trying to find a way out of the conversation, yeah. which is obviously not even a conversation, it's a monologue. But those kind of people follow you around, don't they? Continually talking. I've read poetry like that. So I was just thinking, how can we find ways of ensuring that we don't reproduce that kind of social exchange within a poem? Yeah, it's such a good idea. And I did... I really took that away from it, actually. I have, even though it was almost a year ago, as I'm writing now, I am thinking about the things we discussed in the class. And I think it's such an important thing to try and make your poetry not that bad party guest. Uh -huh. yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought yeah. it was a really, a really important idea. And I think it's helpful to think, to, to hear that. I mean, it's, like I said, it's not like the only thing, I think. It was, I thought it was yeah. an interesting thing yeah, for a bunch of people to explore during that particular period of time. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that obviously I'm aware of when I'm writing. Hopefully, I don't want to bore people. It's like kind of Luke Kennard said this thing once. He wrote this thing in Poetry London, which is something like one of the problems of contemporary poetry is that the poet assumes by default that the reader is interested in their lives. Yeah. And that's true. But, but I do do that. So... I need to stop doing that yeah. and I need kind of mechanisms uh, within my own thought patterns to kind of make sure that I have that at the forefront of my mind or something when I'm writing. Yeah. You mentioned uh, your university lecturing. Yeah. Could you talk to us a bit about that as well? So where you do it, what you teach? Yeah, I started um, doing a bit of lecturing because I did a PhD Brunel and I guess like you're almost obliged to do a bit of lecturing at that point but also you get you get paid for it so I did that and then I carried on doing that but the thing the thing about Brunel is I was only being paid per hour so although I enjoyed it when everyone goes on a Christmas break and everyone says oh have a great Christmas I'm thinking well you can have a great Christmas you're on a £40,000 a year contract irrespective of whether you teach or not but I don't have any money for the next five weeks now. And over the summer, even worse, you know, I finished my PhD, so I, I passed my Viva, handed in the uh, suggested changes, you know, whatever, signed a deal with Blood Axe. That all happened in the space of a week in the summer. And then on the Monday, I started selling tea at Borough Market for like six quid an hour. And it was like, I didn't think that this... In terms of like this sort of narrative, linearity of narrative we've been taught to believe, I didn't feel like, I don't feel that this kind of is consistent with that. Yeah, so uh, when a job came up for 
the University of Hertfordshire, 0.5 posts, so two and a half days a week. I applied for it and uh, was lucky enough to get that job and I really enjoy it. I like working with the people that I work with. Um, and on, and I also I also currently teach on an MA for the Open University, a poetry course which was designed by Siobhan Campbell and Jane Ye. So that's been a really weird and interesting experience, like teaching remotely. I don't think I've ever taught a group of students whilst also eating a bowl of cereal before. <laughs> uh, so that was quite, that's, that's quite in some ways uh, beneficial. I like eating cereal uh, and I don't mind teaching either. So Makes everything better. Yeah. I mean, apart from the cereal thing, what would be the main differences between teaching remotely and... One of the things I find, Izzy, is like a lot of what I say, perhaps I say through body language and mannerisms. So I could say something and people would know the nature of the good nature of it because of the way that I say it, the tone of voice and the expression on my face and probably my heavily camp posture. But I say that for the uh, listener, I'm currently sitting <laughs> in a pose much like a teapot. Um, so, but when you're, but every single piece of feedback that you give any student online the can't you can't leave any room for doubt about your positivity towards it. You don't. Yeah. You can't. There's such a risk of offending or upsetting someone. You can't make any jokes. It, you have to be fairly straightforward mm. and also very thorough. And the, the other thing is that there's quite a few students, and there's not that much time. So each piece of feedback kind of needs to preempt the questions that they will ask about that piece of feedback. So it ends up being three times as long as uh, uh, that feedback would have been had I met the person face to face. So that's that's quite strange. It's quite, I mean, again, it's got some really good things about it. Also, it can be slightly hard work, but I'm enjoying it. I'm, yeah, it's, it's a fun experience. Yeah, good. Maybe at this point we could have another reading. So I thought, yeah, maybe I'll read this one. I've never read this poem before out loud, it, but it was on the... Uh, if you want to read it, it's published by Poetry, so it's on the Poetry Foundation website. It's called Some Wanes. It's effectively just a list of wanes. Magic Wayne with flowers. Wanye West. Box of Tricks Wayne. Wayne, sad on Facebook, proving he loves his daughter. The Sporty Wayne, loves himself skinny. Bold Wayne, head like a rocking chair. Amy Wayne House. Wayne the Ironic. Fat Wayne, tits pushed beneath a Fred Perry Wayne. Wayne from near Slough, ugly Wayne, the unlikely mess of his wife Wayne, canned laughter. Wayne, who renamed another Wayne Fleabag, tracksuited Wayne, your hubcaps, his pockets, home and a Wayne, Randy Wayne, Wayne, fountains of him, every drop snug to someone's mum. Wayne, boyfriend of Stacy, Wayne Kerr, Wayne the rap star, gold thief, grime. Wayne the superhero, Wayne the cowboy, dancing Wayne. In tights, it's waning men. A cavalcade of Waynes fucking each other up. In a Jeff Hatsley poem, in a pub, in Barnsley. Purple Wayne, Wayne's world Wayne. Wayne slang tang smith, a Wayne in a manger. All of them have stopped what they're doing. All of them divided in two rows and facing each other. All of them, arms raised, they are linking fingers, all of them, 
an architrave through which I celebrate, marching like I am the bridegroom, grinning like I am the bride. Turns out I'm not going to read that again, I think. <laughs> I, yeah, I That's won't great. read that. I find it so hard to stay quiet on the recording and not react like I would if we were at a performance. Oh, yeah? That made me laugh. What would you have done? Cackled. Food. Oh, cackled. That's all right, yeah. Was, yeah. Okay, good. Well, at least it was a positive reaction that you were repressing. Repressing. Yeah. <laughs> You're reading from your new book? That's right, yeah. Alarum. Let's uh, have a chat about your book. I, yeah, okay. Got to shift some units. <laughs> so let's, yeah, let's talk about it. I'll just say the official release date is the 23rd of March. That's right, 2017. Yeah. Yep. Which may be in the past or the future, depending on when this podcast wow. has been put out. We're talking about linearity a minute ago. It doesn't exist. Doesn't exist, no. no. Yeah, so 23rd of March. But it is available for pre, uh, pre-order on Amazon, if that's a thing that you do. Although I don't really know, but why, why do people pre-order it? Because you can't get it any earlier, right? No. Like, you could order it on, you could pre-order it, like, or you could get it on the 23rd and it would come to your door at the same time. Maybe in case it sells out. Right, yeah, I'm sure that this <laughs> book will have already sold out by the time that you go on to Amazon. So it's published by Blood Axe? By Blood Axe, yeah, um, who I love. Because, like I said, I said in another thing recently, like, they seem to be quite pluralistic in their approach to uh, who they represent and the subject matter and the voices and the demographics that they represent within the poetry arena. And I am really pleased that they're allowing me to sort of be an additional voice, another voice in their long list of really good voices. Mm. Some of my favourite people have been published by Blood Axe. So, yeah, it was the only place that I sent my manuscript. How long a process was it putting your manuscript together? My thing with Donut Press came out in 2011 and there's not a poem from that pamphlet like a lot of people when they bring a pamphlet out like and then they bring their first collection out you'll find maybe five to ten of those of the poems cross over but none of the poems cross over into this so pretty much they're all new so and that was 2011 so six years but the manuscript I don't know like maybe it was five years two yeah. five years and yeah. is there is there an overarching theme or subject the title kind of indicates some kind of alarm though it's an archaic expression of that term. And there are varying types of kind of alarm, I think, in the book, like anxiety being a major feature. I I mean, I don't know. I guess I can't really dictate how anyone's going to read it or the themes that they pick up. But I would say the two things that I was interested in, it wasn't like I sat down and tried to explore these themes, but the things that came out, of my head seem to be about anxiety and like class and the way that they coexist or the way that in fact received notions of working class masculinity the way that uh received notions about working about uh mental health and then my own kind of experience of mental health can kind of disrupt those dominant narratives of working class masculinity, which was something that I think probably that does happen in the book, at least for my money. I haven't actually paid any money, but if I did pay any money and read this book, I would 
my kind of thoughts about it would be, well, the dominant themes of uh, anxiety and mental health in this book really do disrupt the uh, received notions and narratives about working class masculinity. That's a really successful book. I might buy one for my friend or something. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. It sounds really great. Yeah, you're coming to the launch. I am. I am, yeah. 17th of March. This may or may not be in the past or the future, <laughs> just, or maybe it's today. We're not going to say. No, but the, there is a launch, or there was a launch, on the 17th of March. It is going to be or was <clears throat> really great. I don't think I will ever or will ever have had quite as much fun at this as I, as I, as I will or have had at this launch. And also there may not be any point in talking about the book because it may have sold out. I imagine it would have probably sold out, yeah. I think um, it might. They, they are only did. publishing one copy, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing you lot there. I'm looking forward to... I don't know, it's difficult. I don't really... I like parties. I don't like parties when it's like my birthday. feels a bit like it's going to be focused on me, so I'm going to look for ways to not make it focused on me or to only have it focused on me for a very little while and then to just have fun. You could invite a load of other Waynes and have yeah, them yeah, yeah. there talking to everybody. Yeah. Amy Waynehouse is already coming. I hope so. She's yeah. my favourite. And yeah. Wanker. Wanker is obviously me. Um, <laughs> there's uh, Wayne Dobson, who is like an 80s television magician, uh, had a heavily receding hairline that he was trying to <laughs> disguise. But I, I wonder now if he's still living and whether he's still got any vestiges of hair left. You should try and find out. I might Google him in a bit. Yeah. We'll probably wrap up soon. I'd like to talk hey. in general a bit about your writing practice. Yeah. If you consider yourself to have a writing practice. It's yeah, something I, don't know. Something I like mean? to ask. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, everyone, I think, says this, don't they? That, that, like, they don't have like a time where they sit down and think, right, now I'm going to write a poem. I don't, I definitely don't do that. But I tend to like not write for ages because I have loads of other stuff I have to do and so it's almost like I don't know you know like those scale tricks things or whatever when you were little sometimes one car will go slightly off the track and then all the other cars would like ram into the back of it that's kind of like the thoughts that pile up into my head I think so it goes like something kind of knocks me off track and then that first thought is kind of suspended there and then that kind of obstructs all the other thoughts until there's like a 40 car pile up but then all of a sudden when that kind of first car gets back on track or is allowed to or the whatever was blocking it is removed then all 40 kind of stream out quite quickly so there's a poem in here that I couldn't write for a long time I, I had to revise for my PhD viber and stuff because I didn't want to look stupid in front of some people that I kind of admired and I also wanted to pass my PhD. It wasn't only vanity. But then as soon as that was out the way, the whole poem, 16 pages, came out in about maybe two days. So, and that was like a really good feeling. Thinking, yeah. God, I actually can still write. It surprises me every yeah. time I actually write something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> After yeah. four months of nothing. That's true, that's true. I do, I am incredibly surprised every time I seem to have written a poem. Yeah, I um, think that's what makes it a really wonderful thing do you find that um but after you've written it like one second after you're really discontented again i i find like just the the moment just before if i'm going to put a full stop in it just the moment before i put, put that final full stop is that only bit where i've experienced pleasure and yeah. then immediately afterwards 
that drains self away. Self-loathing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> self-loathing is a good good description of it. I think Heming- it was Hemingway. He said he never feels as good as when he's writing. He feels really shit leading right up to it, really empty and fucked out afterwards. Uh. And yeah, that that perfect moment where you've just completed a poem, that's that's the only good feeling. That might be a good feeling. I don't in any way want to conflate myself with Hemingway. <laughs> Well, I don't think I could have asked for a better analogy than the Scalextric. No, no, that's true. We already had Scalextric. <laughs> Who needs Hemingway when you've got a yeah, Scalextric? Fuck, fuck Hemingway, yeah. The time has gone annoyingly quickly. I've enjoyed chatting to you. All right. Perhaps we could just wrap up Real quick, with, with a like poem. a shorter one. Um, well, I could read the 16-page one if you'd like, Lizzie. It might, it might be not. a bit long. Maybe not okay. today. <laughs> okay, well, maybe I'll just do that at my launch. Yeah. In fact, come to the launch, I'm just going to read all of the poems in my book. Cover to cover. <laughs> really slowly. Is that not what happens at a book launch? They're everyone that I've ever been to, that's exactly <laughs> what's happened, yeah. I'll just say as well, we will put the relevant links in the podcast description, um, so for the book. Oh yeah, that would uh, be helpful. Okay, cool. Lucky. Won't stop fully watching you grow big on your bike in Vauxhall Park. Your dimpled elbows a little too far forward. Your bare knees doing God's work, propelling you onward. It's raining a bit and I'm thinking of the crocodiles I dreamt snapping me up asleep early this morning. There were so many I couldn't count. Chasing me in my little wooden boat rode out not that far but too far and watching you grow now from this distance all of my sadnesses are lucky so many i couldn't count are marching on this articulate moment you on your sprayed gold bike is a celebration is a very small girl with my face is me feeling very alive is i can still see from all this way those sadnesses filing toward my ridiculous boat with its oars and someone perhaps you is singing and the crocodiles a thousand teeth on the cold water tonight thanks for interviewing me thanks for being interviewed cheers I'm glad we've done it yeah thanks sorry it took long <laughs> it's quite all right and like we were saying we don't know when this is no when it's going to be i like that kind of being sort of suspended between linear conceptualizations of time. We're in the middle of it somewhere, we don't really know when. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, it's beautiful, thanks. Thanks very much, and thanks everyone for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>